Well, if you have a Bible, why don't you open with me to John chapter 10? And if you want, you can put a finger there, or I guess this is, this is the new reality. Kind of get your search wheel ready to also go to Romans chapter 12. But let's start in John chapter 10. Now, if you've been a part of our gatherings this fall, we've been going through a series called Dear, Dear Wormwood. In essence, uh, basically these teachings have been based off C.S. Lewis' picture of the Satan, demons, spiritual powers. Thanks for showing up over the last bunch of weeks. And it's really drawn from his masterful work of satire called the Screwtape Letters. And I just want to say there's been some amazing feedback to this series. Some have asked, don't stop. This is going to be the last of the teachings from this. And honestly, as I was thinking this week, in some ways, I feel like I've failed you because there is so much we could talk about. Even this week, I was reading through the screw tape letters again. I don't know if you've read it. It may be a good Christmas read for you by the fire over the next couple of weeks or whatever. But I was reading through it again, and screw tape is trying, once again, to get wormwood to deceive the Christians in all sorts of areas. All sorts of areas that we could have talked about the last little while. Politics and relationships. Screwtape talks a lot, really, about sex and sexual formation and what they're trying to do with the Christian. And I thought maybe we should talk about that. And then I was reminded that we are actually going to start the year off with a series on the Song of Solomon. Yes, you heard it here first, friends. Somebody call somebody. It may get a little spicy at Praxis Church in January as we start walking through the Song of Solomon. Some of you are like, what, really? Oh yeah, don't worry. I've started to prepare. It's gonna be pretty amazing. You know, Screwtape talks about prayer. One of the things that has stood out to me is Screwtape tells Wormwood, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make the Christian think they're praying all the time, Yet in reality, they're not going to bend their knee and actually bow themselves before God. And I thought, man, that's, that's just me. I can go around saying, oh, I pray all the time. I pray, you know, as Paul says, I pray without ceasing. Yet in reality, that's probably uh, more of an excuse than anything. And so I feel like I've failed you in some ways and I haven't done this justice because there's so much that we could talk, uh, talk about. But I also hope that this gives us a good snapshot of how the Satan and the adversary works and thinking through how he wants to work in our moment. Now, with that said, <clears throat> excuse me, let's read the text today. We're going to read John chapter 10, uh, verse 7. Let's start there. It says this, Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Jesus says again, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and they will find pasture. But the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and they may have it to the full. Jesus here declaring to his disciples and to the crowds that are following him that he is the way, he is life, that life is actually found in him. But there also is an adversary, the Satan, the one that wants to come and destroy, who's on a mission to, as the, the text says here, to steal and kill and ultimately with the telos, with the end goal, to destroy our lives. But Jesus comes to give life. Flip over a few books. Romans chapter 12, Paul's magnum opus in many ways, this book that he's put to, this letter he's put together, 
super robust. I've often said in the past that Romans kind of scares me how deep and weighty it is. And then on the other side, listen to what Paul says here. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, Paul uses here in the language, in the the NIV, that we're to not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You know, as you know, with English words, oftentimes words have multiple meanings. And you can probably think of English words in our context that that kind of write the same thing and look the same thing in English, but mean different things. You know, the world we often read in the New Testament simply means God's creation. And I would really want to caution us from this kind of evangelical posture at times that would look at the world as bad or negative. I hear this all the time, that some people think in their theology that God is going to throw this world out, that it's just going to burn up and go away. Uh, Actually, the telos, the end goal of the story of creation, is new creation. And actually, the story we get is that heaven is coming to earth and is going to renew this earth, renew this world in which we inhabit. This is a side note, and uh, listen, we can have coffees and talk about this later. This is just a Drew Fess opinion. This is not like gospel truth, but I actually think I'm going to be a resident in London, Ontario for my forever. I believe in a renewed world that I'm going to probably, I just believe, I had this idea that um, the new earth is going to be a replica of where we live. And why not, as a resident in my whole life in London, live here forever? And some of you think that's that sounds terrible. You know, you hear people say that. I mean, that's, that's terrible. Live in London forever, but think about it. Imagine our cities, our towns, our landscape with no sin and injustice, no racism, no homelessness, no food inequality, no power, powerful politics at play that hurt other people. All of that removed, every tear wiped away. This is going to be a beautiful end goal. So one of the things I always want to caution people is that we have to be careful that we create a negative view of the world or God's creation. But at other times, this word is used to describe almost like a system. I think actually some translations in the scripture talk about the system of the world. And what Paul and other writers of the New Testament are doing when they say things like the pattern or the system of the world is they're not talking about God's creation or God's good creation that is what we inhabit now as much as they're talking about a system within creation that has been taken over by the hostile powers and as we've been talking about the cosmic grabbers, these spiritual beings that along with the Satan, are trying to grasp at God's good creation, and there's a system at play. So, following Jesus is a life that is patterned, and it is formed after Jesus, and yet the system of the world wants to suck us away from God's kingdom and into this way of life in the pattern of the world. In essence, what I think is you have God's vision And the culture that he wants to bring to this world, I think God has a culture of righteousness and justice. He wants to see his will being done. But you also have the patterns and system of this world that's fighting against 
against it. And the power of the prince of the air, the Satan, is the one that is leading this rebellion against God's good plan. And so when you hear about this idea of the system of the world, don't think that God wants to throw this world out as much as there's a culture, and you can nod your head at this, there's ultimately a culture right now in God's good creation that is anti-God. With me? Okay, with that said, what I want to do, again, I have not done this justice. There's so much we could talk about in light of the scripture, in light of what C.S. Lewis does in writing from screw tape to Wormwood. But here's what I want to do. I just want to talk quickly about narratives and loves. Narratives and loves. Every culture has a narrative that it's living out. You know, we have explicitly seen this over the last bunch of years and uh, in our own context as culture changes. And I'll also say that we've seen it over the last number of weeks in how Screwtape wants to slowly draw the Christian away from the kingdom and into a different kind of story. And one of the things we got to grapple with is that our culture and our world has a narrative that it lives by. And it is very different from the ethos and the culture that Jesus followers are called to live in. And if we're not careful, and one of the things why we've done this series, is if we're not careful, the world system can suck us into a different narrative. Ultimately, the world we live in has a particular story and narrative that it's telling. So here's an example, okay? And listen, I'm not the moral police. I'm not out here to try. This is not from a posture of judgment, but I do think there's snapshots and there are examples around us. So here's an example. Um, I do not watch a lot of TV, and I don't say that virtuously. Um, One of the things I realized is the copious amount of sports that I engage in over my life. I've basically had to give up TV viewing to be engaged with sports. So don't think I'm great. Basically, I've had to adjust my time. Some of you think you don't watch TV. It's because I watch too much football. Let's be honest. It's almost one o'clock too, so we got to hurry up. But uh, you know, one thing that COVID has done is in March, everything shut down. Really, all we had uh, was, in some sense, TV and Netflix and all these streaming services. And it was like the first time in my life where beyond reading, which I love to do, Heather and I actually started to watch TV together in our marriage. And uh, it was uh, just an interesting time in our lives where things slowed right down and we would watch TV together. And I noticed one thing in a lot of the shows that we were engaging in. There was a particular narrative or story that was, be- that was basically being told in every single show that we watched. And it was this, every single show, whether on a macro level as the main driving point in the narrative or underneath it, was the idea of infidelity. Like think with me for a second. Think about all the TV you've watched since March. Think about the shows that you've engaged in. There has not been a single show that I have watched, and I'm not, these aren't like bad shows even, but there is not a show that I've engaged in over the last eight months that has not had infidelity as a primary narrative creator within the story. And some of you are thinking, and you're going, oh my, you're thinking now to what you've been watching, and you're thinking, oh my, it's true. And some will say, okay, we're talking about real life experiences here, but, and that, that's fine. But one of the things I want to point out is that our poets and our actors and our writers right now are telling a particular story around what people do with their bodies, around what happens in marriage. And now I would say it's actually a story that has infiltrated people within the church and outside, obviously, in our culture. And this is not to trigger anybody from past experiences. It's just to say, 
that our common culture right now has a story that it's telling about marriage and relationships and what we do with our bodies. And that story now infiltrates into the realness of life. And I just want us to be aware that culture often tells particular stories and we have to, we have to watch how this infiltrates our own living and being as the church, if you're with me. You know, think with me even about things that were once taboo or seen as unvirtuous in the church, even just a decade ago, that have now changed to become mainstream. There are ideas that 10 years ago that would come out of many of our mouths as things that we would never do or never engage in, and yet slowly over time, the narrative and the story that culture is told has oftentimes even infiltrated our lives as Jesus followers. This is not judgment. This is just a cultural pointing towards some of the things that have happened. Now, I'm not saying that we don't wrestle through issues. And if you've been around for a while, you know that this is my story. I think actually one of the things that is almost center to following Jesus is wrestling through issues, deconstruction, questioning things. I think I've had this moment in my life, and honestly, it's made me a better Jesus followers, Jesus follower. So I've res- wrestled through issues like creation. I grew up in an environment that said everything was a seven-day creation. It put new science on the Hebrew creation story. I've realized now through the church fathers, through scholars, that you know the reality is for the most part, we often put new science on the old creation account. Was this really the author's intent? It's okay. There's actually historic Orthodox Christians that actually believe differently than often what we fed in the Western world. The same could be said for the book of Revelation. I kind of grew up in a apocalyptic, heavy, some if you know what I'm talking about, environment that loved things like Armageddon and the Mark of the Beast. And obviously the book sales in the 20th century, the late 20th century, just reflected our hysteria around that. And I've just realized that um, Orthodox Christians, real, the church mothers and church fathers read this probably a little differently. And it probably means something in which we fed ourselves to issues like hell. There is a multipolar orthodox people who love Jesus that have had different ideas around hell and violence in the Bible to write down to what the Bible actually is. You know, we have come as a community over the last little while to see that the Bible is probably more Instead of reading everything literally, we read it literarily. We read it in its proper genres. We work hard. Uh, to issues like women. You know, there's these prohibitions. I grew up in a church that affirmed women leadership, but there are these prohibitions. I've had to wrestle deep down within me around these issues. And I've, I've just come to the conclusion, and many of us have come to the conclusion, that those prohibitions were caught in a particular kind of culture that meant something for their time. With all that said, I want to encourage us to wrestle through issues. This is not what I'm saying. We are open to this, and I think it's a deep part of being a follower of Jesus. But I'll also say, that there are issues in culture that have pervaded the church. And I know I sound old school and I promise that I'm not. But there are things that have changed in our culture over the last little while that have now come in and influenced the church. Positions, honestly, on certain issues, we're not going to get into these issues, but positions that the church has held for two freaking millennia that are now even pointed to as things like intolerant in our cultural moment. And I just think it's funny, for two millennia, church mothers and fathers have worked hard and wrestled through these issues, and it's somehow, yet somehow we think in our moment that we're smarter than these church mothers and fathers who have gone before us. 
And I just want us to, all I want, as we look at Screwtape and what Screwtape writes to Wormwood, and Jesus emphatically talking about an adversary that wants to crush us, one of the ways I think it happens is in the story that our culture tells that is not true. And so, again, some of us sitting here today, we believe firmly about certain issues, even 10, 12, even in our own church, 10, 12, 15 years ago, we believe firmly in something, and those, some of those ideas have changed. And I've shared some of my own journey. Some of those ideas have changed. But I would ask the question out to us and just get us thinking, why do you feel differently? Why do you feel differently about these things? Is it because you've done the hard work? And I'm not pointing to myself as somebody who's amazing, but have you really wrestled through what the scriptures say and what history in the church has taught us? Or is it just a thing where there's a culture now that has a particular story it's telling and that just kind of infiltrates to the point where we buy it? I'll just say that screw tape wants the cultural narrative in our world to slowly corrode the church. And to be honest, I know I'm not, I'm not, this is not hell and brimstone. This is not old school. This is just to make us aware. And honestly, that kind of strategy is brilliant. The slow corroding. And yet, as followers of Jesus, we live by a different system. We live by a different system. So I want to encourage all of us to just think about the cultural narratives out there that so easily turn in on us as Jesus followers. Use our minds and our hearts to wrestle through what is true. In some of the issues, many of the issues that I've just talked about, I've come to the reality that this is tr- that many of these things are true. But I think we need to watch ourselves in what the culture wants to say we should be. And when we live, we're not conformed by the patterns of this world. This is what Screwtape wants. He wants us to be conformed to the system of this world. And yet we're a part of something much more beautiful. And at times it's going to feel like you're swimming upstream. So narratives. Cultural narratives are out there. Be aware. But then there's this also this idea of loves. There's this guy, his name's James K.A. Smith, a brilliant writer and theologian who, and I've shared this, has really shaped and challenged my life over the last five or five or six years. He's done a lot of great work with the church father, Augustine, and his writings have just really challenged me. And, you know, one of the things that Smith argues is that our liturgies or the things that we practice are the things that have formative power in our lives. These are the things that shape us. So oftentimes we come from a posture where we tend to assume that the way to make disciples and form character in people is to give people information. We think, you know, we give people information, this will lead them to make good choices and become more like Jesus in their lives. But when you think about that, that's not entirely true. Now, good information is a good thing, but that is not entirely true. Because if that were true, all we would need to do is read books or articles and we would be transformed. You know, I'm not sure uh, if anybody else has Googled how to have a body like Mark Wahlberg in their mid-30s. Anybody? Me me either. But honestly, you can Google that and read about how Mark Wahlberg looks like he does. But ultimately, it takes practice. In one of his books, Smith talks about sitting in Costco. I think I've shared this example before. And he's reading this book by Wendell Berry. And he's reading this book by Wendell Berry on clean eating. And so he's sitting in the Costco food court, reading a book, has his highlighter and pen out, and is just reading about clean eating. And then he realizes that while he's highlighting and reading this book, he's also eating a Costco hot dog. Right? And this is the tension. It's not just information that changes us. You know, often when we do something silly or out of place, we often say, what was I, what was I thinking? We 
treat people kind of in the Western world as if they're fundamentally knowers. But here's the thing, Smith would argue, and he would take again from people like Augustine, that we're not simply knowers. Smith points to Augustine, who articulated way back, way back, centuries back, that we as humans are more than just brains on a stick. The most defining feature of our character is not what we know, or what we love, but what we know, sorry, but what we love. And what we love is actually what matters, whether we can articulate it or not. So with this in mind, to truly form a person, you have to get, this is what Smith would argue, and this is what Augustine would argue, to form a person, you have to get to what they love. You have to get to their hearts, their desires, their affections. The other truth is that these loves are not often formed logically. We think logically in the Western world, but we may not even know what our loves are, let alone where they came from. The, the idea is this. We are lovers. We are not thinkers. So we learn to love and we learn to desire long before we even think logically. And even deeper, our loves, for the most part, are shaped by our bodies. Our bodies are involved in our emotions in this whole process of formation. So developing our loves is more like learning to drive or playing the piano or practicing our golf swing for some of you than it is like learning algebra or history. It's not just a mental ascent. Our loves are shaped by our, our routines, our rituals, our practices. Our loves are shaped by our liturgies and what we do. You know, one of the, the snapshots and the pictures that Smith gives is he uses the secular liturgy of the shopping mall to make his point. He says this, The mall is when we enter the sanctuary, have our eyes drawn skyward to the vaulted pass through the central meeting area, wander through various chapels like H&M, anybody out there, The Gap, Build-A-Bear for some of us parents, oh my goodness, EB Games now as my kids get older, right? We go through these chapels browsing their different offerings, lighting, or sorry, experiencing the multi-century worship through music and lighting, food, drink, aromas, and the like, seeing icons with like mannequins and posters pointing to an idealized version of the good life, making tra transactions at the altars, the tills, the shopping till, in order to get closer to it and receive a benediction on the way out. Have a nice day. We'll see you soon. You know, amazing picture of how these types of things shape us. Even secular marketers have a more holistic view of the human person than a lot of Christians. They recognize the importance of patterns, of patterns of behavior that form our heart, not just information that shapes our minds. So Smith would say this. We're almost done, I promise. But Smith would say that we are liturgical animals because we are fundamentally desiring creatures. We're embodied. We're not just brains on a stick. We're holistic people. And we are practicing creatures whose love and desire is aimed at something ultimate. All of us, our, our hopes, our desires, our dream, everything within us is aimed at something. And if the church wants to be this counterforming community, we have to shape people's lives we don't just shape it through logic. We need to shape their loves. This is what we need to do, which also means shaping our practices and our liturgies and what we do as a community. 
And the idea is that there's a difference between knowing something and there's a difference between knowing something and doing it. And there's an even greater difference between doing something and wanting to do something. There's the power of habit and our habits shape and form us. So I hear all the time people say, you want to change? You have to not just think through what you do in your mind, but we have to reorient our lives through habit. And I honestly, with all that said, think this is what I think Paul means when he says we need to renew our minds, to not be shaped by the patterns of this world, but to renew our mind. We have to understand that we are lovers ultimately. Yes, we use our minds, but we are lovers ultimately, and that love is going somewhere. And here's how it connects with uh, screw tape as we land the plane on this entire discussion over the last number of months. You and I, and everybody that's breathing in God's good world are worshipers. We're all worshipers. Doesn't matter if you're worshiping God or you're worshiping the stock market or youth sports or you fill in the blank. We are all worshipers. We are all giving our attention to something. And Screw Tape knows this. This is what I get from this, this whole discussion we've had over the last number of weeks. Screw Tape knows we're worshipers, that our hearts are bent towards something. And what he wants to do is he wants to draw it away from what we're intended to worship to worship created things. We're all worshipers. I love when, you know, atheists or people outside who maybe are hostile towards Christianity say that they're not worshipers and then you just ask them about what they do. And the reality is, is their time, their attention, their patterns, their habits are all, all pointed in, in a certain direction and we're all worshiping something. And I just want us to be aware of this, that Screwtape knows this and he wants us to have our worship oriented in different directions than the kingdom and the king. And so brothers and sisters, through all of this, we could talk for hours, years, millennia around what's happening in our moment, but I just want us to be reminded that there are cultural narratives that are trying to shape your life and you need to be aware of it. And you are a lover more than you're a thinker. And you need to begin to discern the direction of where our loves are going. And for some of us, I even feel it, the weight of this, as Screwtape writes to Wormwood, the weight of, oh my goodness, the lies, the ideas, the wrong thinking. My mind needs to be renewed. I need to be conformed, not to the patterns of this world, but our minds need to be renewed as we follow the king in the kingdom. Drop the mic. There it is. Dear Wormwood, one of the funnest times I've had in engaging the scripture and engaging these ideas for sure. If funnest is a word, I'm not even sure if funnest is a word. To close, I want to put this quote up again. We've read this quote. This is what, again, I wish I had we had time just to throw up so many of the quotes that Screwtape uses. But we've used this quote before. I want to close with this. Screwtape says this to Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human or follower of Jesus no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to be have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That you and I, I think, can actually be a threat to screw tape. You want to know how it is? in a world with all sorts of stories that want to try and shape our lives, we are obedient even when we don't feel it. This is the great danger 
to Screwtape and his minions. This is the great danger and the great threat to the adversary and spiritual powers that want to draw us away from God. We're obedient. We follow the way of Jesus. We practice the way of Jesus even when we don't feel it. We're not just drawn by emotion of how we're feeling or even all the times that everything has to make sense. We're people that are obedient and on this long road and no matter what's thrown our way, this is what the great threat is to screw tape. We're gonna follow Jesus' heart, soul, mind, and strength forever. You with me? Anybody out there? This is what it means to follow Jesus. With this said, brothers and sisters, there's lots to chew on. Um, we love you guys so much. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm not gonna, um, I'm not gonna close in prayer here. I'm actually gonna throw that, to, we're gonna go into some groups now. Just take a couple minutes. We love you. Take a mi couple minutes, say hello. We have some great leaders in there. there. They'll, they'll close in prayer for us. Maybe you wanna share what you're thinking about this. And guys, we will see you on Zoom next Sunday, 5 p.m. for the virtual party of the year. We love you. Grace and peace.